Hey everyone, and welcome back to this new episode of the Linux and Open Source News Show. I'm your host, Nick, and in this show we just talk about the Linux and Open Source News. So this one is a bit of a smaller episode, probably, because, well, it was the holiday for me, it was Christmas, there's the end of the year coming, and so, obviously, I haven't been working last week. So this one might have a little bit less information, but there's still some pretty interesting stuff uh, the first being Nate Graham of KDE fame explaining why X11 is a bad platform and why Linux is not a platform at all. And it's an interesting read. We also have some more regulation towards AI, especially in the US, but also Firefox working on their own local and private little AI helper. We also have a look at how free and open source licenses are not really enough in the world we currently live in, and a lot of other interesting things. So as always, if you want to read more about any of these topics, all the links that I use to build this show are in the show notes. And if you like what I'm doing and you want to support the podcast, there are plenty of links in the show notes to do just that as well. So let's begin with Wayland. And you probably know Nate Graham. He's the person who writes all these This Week in KDE blog posts that I regularly reference in this show. He's basically the guy who compiles everything and tells you what's happening. And he posted a blog post this week where he addresses some concerns that people have about Wayland and explains why X11 is just not something you want to build upon. And it's a really interesting read, no matter if you like Wayland or not, uh, it's worth it reading all these arguments. So first, he addresses the semi-recent Wayland Breaks Everything blog post. It's, it's something that's been floating around for a few months, maybe a year. It's written by uh, the main developer for App Images, and it's notoriously full of false claims, of weird ways of looking at issues, and stuff that just isn't true anymore or hasn't been true since even before he published uh, that blog post. Uh, if you want to learn more about this specific thing, uh, Brody Robertson has a very interesting video on that. I left a link to it in the show notes as well. He basically dismantles the whole blog post because it's full of complete nonsense and weird stuff. So this person who wrote the Wayland Breaks Everything blog post also has started a new GitHub repo where he basically wants to try and implement or, or let people implement additional protocols on top of Wayland to support stuff that X11 does but Wayland doesn't, which in itself is a laudable goal, like let's try and build some more stuff. Except all the protocols that they want to implement are things that Wayland does not want to implement in this specific way because, well, it's insecure, it's how X11 did it, and it's just not compatible at all with the vision for the Linux desktop, with portals, or with using standardized components like Dbus and, and portals. So Nate Graham addresses all of this. He basically says that this approach can't work because all of these protocols would be add-ons on top of Wayland, and so no app developer would ever support them because there's no way of knowing if these protocols are actually in the system of the user or not. So either you implement them with an if condition, like if it's there, then you use it. If it's not, then you don't have access to the feature. It makes no sense. No one is ever going to support that, not considering the fact that for now the GitHub repo for all these protocols is completely empty. It's just a place where these protocols could be implemented if someone ever decided to try and do that. 
So, basically he says that everyone looks at that with a nice little chuckle because, like, no one really thinks this is going to amount to anything, and it's basically pure Wayland hate being built up to show, hey, look at what is not supported yet, even though those things were never meant to be supported. They're relics of X11 that should not be implemented in this specific way. The feature could be useful, but the way they want to implement it is definitely not the right way to go about it. Again, I will point you to the video from Brody Robertson. Uh, it's in the show notes. It explains everything much better than I could ever hope to do. Now, Obviously, Nate points out that all this work from the app image dev is looking at things from the wrong end of, of the telescope. They're thinking in terms of Wayland breaks everything, instead of realizing that it is applications and desktops that need to support the new Wayland protocols. And I'm saying new protocols, but they're not new. Most of them have been around for a long, long while. Now, the apt comparison that Nate uses in the blog post is it would be like saying Linux breaks Photoshop. Like, obviously no one thinks like that. It's not Linux that breaks Photoshop. It's Photoshop that needs to be ported to Linux. The issue remains that Linux doesn't have Photoshop, but the issue is Adobe doesn't have a Linux version. It's not that Linux breaks the application. It's the same thing for Wayland. It doesn't break everything. It's just that some apps don't support it correctly. And... Basically, Wayland was never meant to be a drop-in replacement for X11. It was never intended to be that, and so it's not that. It will replace X11, but it's not a drop-in replacement with exactly the same architecture, because that would make no sense. Now, Nate then moves on to explaining why X11 was a bad platform to build upon to begin with, because it was intended as a platform, not just a display server. It came with its own graphical toolkit to build applications. And this toolkit was so bad that it led to the creation of Qt and GTK and then KDE and GNOME. Because basically the toolkit worked in a very weird way that meant that launching another app could break one that was already open. It looked absolutely horrible. It lacked a bunch of components. It was basically not usable at all. And so that's why we got GTK and Qt, and that's why we have applications that don't look the same and we are fragmented there, because X11 was a bad platform to begin with. And Nate concludes by saying that basically Linux is not a platform. That's something I already said in a video a while back. You don't develop a Linux application. You develop a KDE app, a GNOME app, an Elementary app, or an Enlightenment app, or maybe in the future a Cosmic app, which is based on a specific toolkit and framework. And that's what allows you to communicate with Linux. You don't write an app that directly talks to the GNU tools or to the Linux kernel. Now, the real platform nowadays on which you want to build is Wayland, Pipewire, and portals. They are basically the set of APIs and libraries that provide all the features that an application needs. You have ways to interact safely with the file system, you have ways to send notifications, you have ways to send something to be printed, to drag and drop stuff, to use the correct theme, the correct accent color, you have an audio system, a visual, si a video system, something to interact with your webcam, a way to display windows, desktops, toolbars to manage them. It's the platform. No matter the toolkit that you use, because the toolkit talks to Wayland, to Portals, or to Pipewire, the platform, the underlying platform, is now Wayland, Pipewire, and Portals. 
And so, in this Wayland breaks everything blog post and in trying to implement newer protocols on top of Wayland to basically rebuild X11 as it was on top of Wayland, uh, the person is misinformed because they want the platform to not depend on the components that the platform uses. They're thinking in terms of, you're developing a Linux app, which has never been the case. Uh, they basically think that stuff like Wayland, Poros, or Pipewire should be entirely optional, but they're not, because they're the foundation of virtually every single Linux distro and system out there. So considering those things as optional, and building protocols that don't depend on those things is a fruitless effort because you're just duplicating work again for no valid reason. So I think Nate is right here, obviously, like hey, some people might call me a Wayland shell, which maybe I am, but you can't deny that Wayland is what we're all going to be using at some point. No one is working on X11, you won't be able to use it in 10 years. So yeah. I think Nate is right. I also think that is right in thinking that this platform, Wayland, Pipewire, and Portals, should have its own name uh, because, like, it's basically sort of the Linux SDK. Uh, we, you could pair it with GTK or GNOME, but it should probably be packaged in a single way or documented in a single place so that app developers know how they can interact with that. And yeah, it should probably have its own name, like maybe like the core of Linux desktops. He's suggesting like PW2 because that's like pipe wire and Wayland and portal. So that's two P's and two W's. But yeah, who knows? I think it's a very interesting blog post. No matter if you hate Wayland or not, it's interesting to read about that because it sort of puts things into perspective. Every project in the future is going to move to Wayland. Maybe it's in two years, maybe it's in five years, maybe it's in 10 years but no one is going to keep working on X11. So at some point, you won't be able to use it. And to begin with, it wasn't that great. Like, it might be better than Wayland for now for your use case, but you can't deny that X11 is a giant mess. It's broken. It doesn't work. It doesn't support all the latest things. It's completely insecure by design. It's just not something we can keep using. And so the, the right way to look at this is, okay, Maybe Wayland isn't ready for me right now, so I'm gonna keep using X11. But don't turn that into Wayland breaks things, because that's not the case. It's app developers put their apps to the new platform that everyone will be moving towards. And that's a way more productive way of looking at things, instead of trying to pick a side and saying, oh no, Wayland is so bad because it doesn't support this right now. It's, it's a feature. Like, it's a feature. It's gonna come. Just for now, don't use it and wait for the feature to come. Now, I talked recently of Ubuntu's plans to focus on a recent feature set for their x86-64 architecture support. Uh, basically, they were looking at only supporting x86-64 v3, which is, we're now currently at v4, but they wanted to cut off the support at v3, or at least they were looking at it, because it would mean potentially better performance for newer CPUs, because you could build all the packages to take advantages of the new instructions that are available to newer CPUs, but that would also mean dropping CPUs from 2015 and older, which is like not that far away. And so they were asking and wondering, is the performance difference enough? Uh, how many people are going to be left in the dust? And Foronix has the answer for at least the first part of the question, which is, what are the performance benefits? So Foronix benchmarked all of that mostly on server-side applications 
And it looks like there definitely are performance benefits for a lot of at least server-related use cases. Some workloads are absolutely much, much faster when using the Ubuntu builds uh, that they provide made for the v3 of x86-64. So all packages were compiled with the new instruction sets to make sure that they take advantage of everything recent CPUs have to offer. Now, something they can't do right now, because if they do so, well, obviously CPUs that don't have those instructions uh, will not work. Like, some applications will flat out not work. Uh, but apparently those performance gains are really limited to a subset of use cases. It seems to be really beneficial when the CPU is under heavy load, or when you have graphical intensive tasks that are CPU bound and not GPU accelerated. So it's not a clear win when there is a performance gain. It is absolutely significant. It's a big gain. But it's not everywhere, and it's not necessarily for standard use cases that people using a desktop uh, might, might focus on. So it remains to be seen what can be done with this. Uh, Ubuntu basically has three options. They could not change anything, they keep supporting everything, they keep building the packages as they were, because it's not the time to do that yet. They could decide to drop older CPUs, and so leave a bunch of people behind because their computers won't be able to run Ubuntu at all, or they could maintain two sets of packages. They could have like two builds of each package, which would be an enormous task. Uh, one that is limited to v2 of the architecture, one that is taking advantage of v3 but doesn't work on all the CPUs. I would really be surprised if that was the route they went, uh, because it's obviously a lot of maintenance work to rebuild those packages, uh, and, and a lot of storage space as well. So it probably is not an interesting way to do it. Uh, but yeah, the gains, they're there, they're significant when they occur, but are these gains important enough and broad enough in terms of use cases to justify leaving a bunch of older pieces behind? Personally, I don't think so, judging from the first benchmarks. Uh, maybe it needs a bit more time in the oven, Maybe in like five years, saying, okay, you know what, like these CPUs from 2015, yeah, they, they, like we don't care, okay? If you use that, then you use a distro specifically tailored for your older hardware, it's okay. But right now, it's probably too soon compared to the gains that at least Foronix could find in their benchmarks. Now, speaking about optimizations, a KDE will get, well, probably will get dynamic triple buffering soon. If you don't know what that is, uh, it's a feature that improves latency and smoothness when you don't have a very powerful GPU. The GPU basically takes a bit too much time to render a frame, so it misses the deadline uh, for, for vSync, and so it has to delay the display of the frame for just the next cycle. And so it results in either jittery frame rates or just you clicking on something and the action taking a bit longer than it should, like the display doesn't refresh fast enough. And that's something that you can notice on a vanilla GNOME uh, and on KDE as well, if you don't have a powerful, well, not necessarily a powerful, but if you have a weak integrated GPU, that's something you'll definitely notice. Uh, there's also a patch for that for GNOME, which should land in GNOME 46. It's something that Ubuntu already implemented themselves, and they have done so for a few versions now. But KDE didn't have that yet. So there's now a merge request open for Kwin to fix that thing. 
It's not completely finished. There are still some discussions. Uh, developers are debating whether they should bring it to x.org as well, because for now it's just for Wayland. And honestly, I think they shouldn't bother uh, because, well, that's been their motto for Plasma 6. Like, we're not developing any new features for x.org, so they probably shouldn't. But if it's not that hard, why not? And they're also talking about how they could transition between double buffering and triple buffering because you don't necessarily always need to use triple buffering. If your GPU is, is powerful enough, then double buffering is enough. And so you're going to spare the GPU a little bit of extra work. So, yeah, they're, they're debating a few things, but it looks like this is going to come, maybe not for Plasma 6, but maybe at a point update to Plasma 6 in the future. Uh, so that's pretty nice. It's going to mean improved responsiveness, improved latency on KD and on GNOME for their next releases, which, yeah, pretty cool. Running Linux on all the CPUs. If Ubuntu lets you do so, uh, it's going to be a better experience. Now, on the topic of desktops, we have an update to a desktop I virtually never talk about and that nobody virtually talks about, which is Enlightenment. Enlightenment is, if you don't know about it, a full desktop. It's, it's a set of libraries, but it's also a graphical shell and a suite of basic applications. But it's not something that moves really fast. It's been around for a long while. It already existed uh, way back when I started using Ubuntu in 2006 or something, or 2007 maybe it started. It's an old project. It's, it's been there for a while, but it doesn't really move all that fast. It doesn't see updates often, and it's relatively bare bones, which means it's often forgotten. So... It's been two years since their latest update, and now they have a major one, which is version 0.26, and it has a few interesting updates. Uh, first, you're now getting a direct display control option, which lets you control the display brightness uh, of your display with more granularity. You also get larger previews for your tasks in the task manager of the desktop, and they also added an experimental mode as well, which obviously is important and something they should focus on. And notably, the Enlightenment framework, like, like the Enlightenment libraries, uh, they're the thing that Budgie wanted to use to build Budgie 11, but they might reconsider because support for Wayland in Enlightenment is not fully there yet, and they're not making it their priority, which means Budgie 11, uh, which is supposed to be Wayland only, might need to look at another avenue for that. Now, in terms of other updates to the Enlightenment desktop, the file manager gains support for custom actions, which means you can add desktop files in a special directory, which will add entries in your right-click context menu in the file manager. The desktop also gains support for the Dbus API that lets you lock or unlock your desktop. And they added a new watchdog thread that basically looks for stuff that is stuck, stuff that is using too much resources, and basically trying to smooth that out to ensure that the desktop is more responsive and more stable. They added an API so notifications can now play sounds, which I'm not a fan of, but I guess maybe it's useful in some cases. You can now set mouse cursor acceleration with a flat profile. You can now use high-resolution scrolling if you have a, a good enough mouse. And there are a few other usability improvements. So it's not a major update like you would get in a, like a new version of GNOME or KDE or even uh, Elementary OS or, or even XFCE. And Enlightenment has a pretty glacial uh, pace in terms of updates. It doesn't receive them often. It's basically on the same level as something like XFC or Mate. 
but it does look pretty interesting. It looks relatively speedy and fast. I think it's renowned for that, for being uh, really not that resource intensive. It does look interesting, so maybe I should cover it at some point. Uh, well, let me know. You, you can leave a comment, uh, by the way, if you don't know, on these shows at uh, podcast.thelinuxexp.com. So if you're interested in me covering Enlightenment in a video on the YouTube channel, uh, let me know in a comment. Now, good news for Linux gamers, we now have the release of Nobara 39. Uh, Nobara is basically Fedora, but retooled to have all the latest drivers, kernels, and, and just support for Linux gaming, all the tools that you need to have a good Linux gaming experience out of the box. It's from the developer of Proton GE, which is already a fork of Proton meant to add better compatibility for games. And so Nobara 39 is based on Fedora 39, and it still packs everything that you might want to start gaming on Linux. But it does have one major change, uh, they are moving away from GNOME and moving to KDE as the default. And they advance a few reasons for this. First, KDE supports variable refresh rate and FreeSync natively. GNOME needs patches to do that and so might not be stable and require some extra work. KDE also now supports DRM leasing, uh, which basically is something you absolutely need for VR and GNOME hasn't full support for that yet, while KDE does. KDE also better supports the fractional scaling protocol on Wayland and fractional scaling in general. Gnome still considers that as experimental. And Nobara developers also advance the fact that SteamOS uses KDE in their desktop mode, which means that KDE might receive uh, more gaming-focused patches in the future compared to Gnome, uh, maybe from Valve, maybe from KDE developers working with Valve. So it's not a bad choice. And Honestly, I might be like crucified for this, but the more I use KDE, uh, I've moved to KDE like a few months ago, and the more I use KDE, the more I'm thinking that currently it is the superior desktop. We'll see if I revise that with the race of Plasma 6. Like KDE 5.27 hasn't been as stable as GNOME was in my experience, especially with the Wayland session and NVIDIA drivers, but with the release of KDE 6, well, Plasma 6, uh, I will probably have to revise my position because it does look like KDE is moving faster and it kind of feels like more and more distros are moving to KDE as the default instead of GNOME, which means that it looks like there's a shift. So it's an interesting thing. Now, apart from that, uh, to go back to Nobara and to stop ranting about stuff that has nothing to do with the topic, uh, Nobara also packs the very latest NVIDIA drivers uh, by default. They also add a few patches to their OBS package, OBS Studio, to better support Wayland. Uh, if you don't know, like Nobara is aimed at gamers, but also at content production, so it facilitates the installation of DaVinci Resolve, of OBS Studio, of uh, various FFmpeg-dependent tools and stuff like that. They also fixed their welcome app uh, to now install fixes for DaVinci Resolve and for various Steam games in just one click. They also updated their Steam package. It should yield better performance and better compatibility. And they also moved to DNF5. Uh, Fedora is stuck on DNF4 and they decided to not use DNF5 until I think Fedora 41, uh, which is going to be in a year. So Nobara already moved to it. I don't know if it's the right move because if Fedora considered it not stable enough, maybe it's not the right move, but I don't know. Uh, Fedora, at least uh, DNF5 is much faster than DNF4, which means speedier package installs. Let's just hope it doesn't sacrifice stability or creates dependency issues. 
and Nobara also moved to Chromium as their default browser instead of Firefox, which is a change I just simply cannot agree with. Let us not reinforce the stupid Google Chromium Blink monopoly because that's really bad for the web. Now, in various tests since Nobara was released, it basically always emerged as one of the best, highest performing Linux distributions for gaming. And that includes beating Windows 11 in a recent benchmark made by a German website on five games that all used Proton, including Cyberpunk, uh, Hogwarts Legacy, and more. And Nobara trounced Windows 11 and basically beat every other Linux distro in all benchmarks from a margin of 1 to 10%, depending on the game and the use case. So if gaming is your main activity on Linux, then probably Nobara currently is your absolutely best option. You have everything you need pre-installed. It does have patches and stuff to have the best performance possible for gaming. It's probably your best option out there. It might not be as stable as other options, but if all you do is gaming and you don't install thousands of, of various libraries and weird packages, then probably you'll be fine on that. Now it's time for two little segments about AI. Uh, the first one is Firefox. They're gonna get their own AI toolbox, or at least Mozilla is working on one. It's much like every other browser is trying to do right now, but of course, since it's made by Mozilla, they're looking at things a bit differently. Uh, they're building something that is called Memory Cache. It's an add-on for Firefox, and it's built using something called Private GPT. It means that you're training a local AI only with your own data, your own browser history and other local files that you might want to give it. Uh, you could give it some PDFs, some documents, some URLs. Uh, you decide, or maybe your browser bookmarks, you decide what you feed that thing, but by default, it's gonna feed on your browser history. And everything is run locally. The AI doesn't have a cloud-based implementation. It doesn't send anything to the cloud or to a giant tech company. And the AI basically just uses your idle time in your computer to try and generate insights about what you've been reading. So it's an, it's an experimental project yet. It's still being worked on. But I think it's a pretty interesting take on AI because it's not trying to replace a web search with a bot that gives you one single answer because that approach, I feel, is a terrible one. Uh, it's the one single answer is often insufficient. It will often be inaccurate. And so with an AI that is used to improve your research and not give force feed you a single information, I think it's much better. Basically, you've been reading, I don't know, you've been researching a specific topic. I'm researching something for a video. I'm looking at a bunch of websites about, I don't know, let's say systemd. I want to learn more about systemd. I'm looking at a bunch of websites, articles, technical documentation, and everything. And in the background, the AI is thinking, okay, this guy's looking at systemd. That's the main thing. He, he's been looking at all these resources. And then with just the extension... I click on it, it gives me a nice little summary of everything I looked at. It looks for, for comparison points, and it might even suggest other resources that I might want to look at. That's the right way to approach things. It's not to replace your research, it's to improve it. Based on what you looked at, it's building, uh, let's say, a summary and a, a basic comprehension guide of what you looked at and what you could look at next. I think it's the right way to look at things. It's like a research assistant 
instead of giving you a single definitive answer that will often be completely insufficient. And also it looks like it's built to be private, which is a nice plus because using stuff like ChatGPT or, or a Google's future AI or, or Meta's future AI will be a freaking privacy nightmare, you all know it, it's built to collect all your data on everything you're looking at with your consent, because obviously you're giving it consent uh, to, to just uh, look at what you asked it, what you gave it as a prompt. It's terrible. You don't want to use those things. Uh, it's much better if you use a locally run private AI that doesn't sync anything to the cloud. So the project, obviously, coming from Mozilla, it's open source under the Mozilla public license. And I'm really interested to see if it could help be helpful to, to summarize research, to suggest new information sources, basically to be your little research helper. I think it's the best way to do things. I think it's always better to research things yourself rather than rely on one single info draw. There are some questions that will like be easily answered by any stupid AI bot that will give you the definitive answer because there are facts in this, in this world and, and those facts can absolutely be digested by an AI. The problem is some answers aren't facts. They're opinions, they're subjective, they, there are multiple issues and, and ways to look at the issues and an AI will never be able to give you a nuanced, unbiased, complete answer on all sides. It, it just cannot do it because it doesn't understand the context and I don't think it ever will be able to. So it's always better to have your own research and maybe have something that summarizes what you have looked at, like outlining the major points of various things, like cross-referencing between sources to tell you the things that always come back, like the things that all articles mention about a specific topic. I think it's the right way of doing it. And of course, whether Mozilla should focus on that instead of trying to revive Firefox because it is dying, losing market share fast, it's losing support from major websites and it might just not be able to browse the web for much, much longer. Uh, whether Mozilla should focus on that instead of trying to build an AI, that's another topic entirely. But at least if they have to focus on an AI, I think their approach is the right one. And our second AI-related topic is about AI regulation. Uh, the EU already put in place something uh, along those lines, and now it's the US's turn. Uh, it looks like AI regulation is happening, whether the tech bros think it should or not, uh, it's happening. Uh, this new bill is called the AI Foundation Model Transparency Act, uh, so AFMTA, and it would basically require creators of AI models to disclose the sources for the training data that they used. The main goal would be so that copyright holders could look at that and say, hey, you used our stuff here and you didn't give us any money. So yep, fork over the cash, buddy. That, that's the main thing, basically. They will also have to disclose how the data is being retained and saved. So all the training data, do you store it? Do you have the legal rights to store it and to use it? and to reuse it to retrain your model. And uh, model developers will also have to be clearer about the limitations or the risks that they identified uh, for their model, also what computational power it's using to train the AI. And the developers will also need to report on the efforts that they have in place to prevent the model 
from just spitting out completely inaccurate or harmful information, notably about elections, financial decisions like taking a loan or, or investing, uh, medical help, and other things that are generally the source of pretty weird conspiracy theories and misinformation. Obviously, this is the more touchy part of the topic, because we all know that those AI models just regurgitate weird things, they hallucinate stuff, depending on what they were trained on, they will give you very biased political opinions uh, from any side of the political spectrum. And so, having the AI models developers transmit uh, what efforts they put in place is good, but it must not turn into maybe a, a information police, let's call it, uh, that would decide what is good, what isn't good, because obviously that's just very dependent on what the current government is, and it's just never a good idea. So this bill hasn't been passed yet, of course, nothing is for certain yet, and it will obviously only affect the US, or at least models developed in the US, but it's still a step to try and check what information these tools will give to the general public, and whether they're just paying their dues to the content that they're using to train the AI. It does look like a push from copyright holders and lobbyists to just make more money out of their stuff if it's being used uh, by an AI, but I'm also looking at it from, for example, the standpoint of GitHub Copilot. It basically pilfered every open source repo on GitHub to generate code that doesn't follow the licenses of the code it was trained on, that doesn't give any attribution to any of the code it was trained on, and sometimes just completely copy-paste entire functions or sequences that it learned inside of open source code. It's not just, well, it's generating its own code, because no, it's, it's copy-pasting a lot of stuff. So it's basically breaking every license of the code that it's been using. We could also look at it from the art-focused AI lens. Uh, those things like Midjourney or Stable Diffusion, they blatantly rip off certain artist styles. You can even ask for that style in the prompt and it will generate something that's pretty convincing. I do think we need regulation on that. It's not just, oh, they took content from this giant big company that already makes millions. It's they're taking content from everyone, from the smallest artist to the biggest one, and they're not giving any money, they're not giving attribution, they're not following the licenses. So I do think we need regulation on that front. Using material uh, in an AI, which is a new use, because you're training the AI. It's, is it plagiarism? Is it covered in the current copyright laws? No one really knows. So it needs to be regulated to decide what we need to do on that. And so I think, personally, that using material... Uh, from someone should involve a compensation for the people who created that material, or we should at least have a right to ask for them to just remove your data and so the AI is not trained on that, and maybe to retrain the model without your data at their cost, because you never agreed to that. It, I mean, if it's being used to create stuff that is meant to replace your material, like for example, I'm making Linux news video. If, if, the, if an AI was trained to read and look at all the various sources I usually use to build those videos. It's trained on my videos to know the rhythm, the, the number of articles I put, uh, which points I focus on, and then it spit out like AI-generated videos doing the exact same work that I do. I would be pretty pissed because it used all my work and all my research and all the stuff that I built 
over the years, the way I build those videos, it's used that to build an exact replica of what I'm doing. I would want to be compensated, or at least I would want to ask them to stop doing that. And that's something I should have a right to because it's my work and it's weird. Uh, so I can only imagine for someone who really creates something out of nothing, like an artist or someone writing code, uh, it must feel even worse. So I think it's good to have those regulations in place. Obviously, I don't want them to turn into the information police and just saying, oh, your AI cannot talk about this topic because it's too sensitive, because uh, that would suck. Uh, but I do want uh, material being used to train AIs to be regulated and to be fairly compensated for. Now, on the open source side, there was an interesting look at how open source sort of needs to evolve for the modern world and what will come after open source, uh, because apparently our licenses don't seem to be fully adapted to the current world. Uh, Bruce Perrins, uh, I don't, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Perrins, Perrins, basically he was one of the main impulsors of the open source movement. Uh, he discussed that specific issue. He said that open source licenses are currently full of loopholes that are being exploited by many businesses. One of these being, for example, Red Hat, because Red Hat sells open source software under the GPL. Uh, so they're using software licensed under the GPL, which means they should not have the right to put restrictions on how you access the source code. But they do, because you do get access to the source code when you're a Red Hat customer, and you do get access to the source code of the patches for as long as you're a Red Hat customer. But with that source code, you're not allowed to redistribute it, or your customer agreement will be terminated. So Red Hat is putting restrictions on the redistribution of the source code they generate under the license, under the GPL, and that's something the GPL explicitly forbids. But since they're building a contract around it, it sort of works in a legal sense. It's just completely against the ethic and, and, and the letter, the, the spirit, sorry, of the GPL. It's authorized by the letter of the license because they built a contract on top of it. But technically, that should not be allowed. It's a loophole, basically. Now, the other main issue that parents uh, notes is that open source failed to serve the general public. He says that most people do use open source, notably in the infrastructure that they access, but they use it through a proprietary operating system and proprietary applications. Uh, so the infrastructure is based on open source software, but the proprietary software that you use to access it is definitely not open source. And in terms, this means that the like normal people aren't aware of open source or free software, uh, uh, not normal people. I'm not saying us Linux or open source users aren't normal, but let's say the general non-tech focused public. They don't know about open source or free software. They don't know about the freedoms that this software guarantees them. And so they can't really make a choice on whether they want to use open source software or not because they don't even really know that it exists. And so parents then goes on to try and imagine what could be put in place to fix that. Uh, it's something that he calls post-open, uh, so what comes after open source. And obviously, it's all wishful thinking. It's just ideas without really any means to implement them. But basically, what he would like to see is a yearly compliance process uh, that businesses would have to take and that would check if they actually respect the principles of open source, respect the letter and the spirit of the licenses, and it would also make businesses pay a fair amount uh, for their use of open source software to build commercial products. That money would then be used to fund developers who write software that is targeted towards the general public 
to improve adoption of open source software in day-to-day -day use cases. Now, like I said, it's all wishful thinking. There's absolutely no real way or organization that could put all of this in place. Uh, but Perrin says that the GPL just cannot be a license anymore. It needs to be a binding contract. And that's something I fully agree with. Licenses are broken regularly and they are sidestepped and they don't really have the same legal power as a signed contract. A contract would have much more power to ensure that things are fair and respect the principles of open source and free software, but it would also need to be managed by a specific entity with like enforcement verifications and stuff like that. And it's basically impossible to put in place with how fragmented uh, open source and open source licenses are. So yeah, I do agree that yes, we need to fix those loopholes, uh, it's probably better to just try and fix them by rewriting the licenses and, and making them like more ironclad maybe uh, than trying to build a whole administrative engine on top of it, I think. Okay, and now let's finish this with just one piece of gaming news. Uh, we got a nice first look at the Steam Deck OLED from the website Boiling Steam. And it looks like it's not all roses and rainbows for them, at least. Uh, it's just based on one single impressions. Uh, but the, the person running the site that got that Steam Deck OLED uh, seems to be a bit underwhelmed uh, by the device. Uh, apparently, like the, the aesthetic modifications, like the orange colors and the transparent case or whatever that they got, uh, the, the modification to the inputs, like the joysticks, it all feels subjective, like it's a personal preference thing, whether you like them or not. Uh, but it looks like the battery life is a bit disappointing. A boiling steam noticed that when playing at the lower brightness levels, uh, for example, when you're in your bed at night with no lights on and you want the, the, the brightness to be as low as possible to not destroy your eyes, the new OLED model seemed to draw more power in that state than the old LCD deck, half a watt more, especially when playing smaller and less demanding titles. It looks like when you're playing heavier titles that really do draw a lot of power, uh, then the battery life gets better on the OLED than on the LCD. But for smaller indie titles that generally would net you a nice battery life on the LCD model, the battery life was a bit lower on the OLED model, which is counterintuitive because the battery is bigger. So maybe the OLED doesn't go as dim as the LCD and its base uh, power consumption is higher than an LCD display, or at least than the, the LCD display that the deck uses. Maybe it's because it's a bit bigger. Uh, maybe there, are, there, there aren't more pixels. I think it's the same resolution. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's the, what the deal is. But basically, yeah, uh, indie titles at lower brightness definitely do not yield a better battery life. It's actually a bit worse. But for more demanding titles, it's better. Uh, they also reported, and they don't seem to be the only ones reporting that, uh, there are a few problems with audio crackling and electrical noises when using the audio jack. Uh, they apparently tried it with like different headsets and it always does that and they're not the only ones having that. Uh, Valve apparently even asked some people to return their devices uh, because they couldn't fix the issue. And apparently the display brightness also doesn't go as low as the LCD which is like one of the problems of LCD displays. They do get pretty bright, especially since this one supports HDR. So it does have a higher brightness uh, cap uh, than the LCD model, 
which means that if you're gaming in a dark room often, like if you if you want to, to slot in a few one-hour gaming session before going to bed, your eyes might not thank you with the OLED model. Now, apart from that, though, uh, the impressions seemed positive. Uh, the OLED display is really beautiful. HDR is cool. Uh, the 90 hertz refresh rate is definitely an improvement. So it's all dependent on your use case. Uh, apparently, the use case for for the person running Boiling Steam is uh, playing in the dark at night and and not super demanding games. And for that, apparently, the OLED model is not as good as the LCD one. But for a lot of other use cases, it will obviously be a big improvement compared to the regular model. Now, as I previously said a bunch of times, I have no plans to buy an OLED deck. Uh, I will probably buy a newer model when they release, like, I don't know, a Steam Deck 2 uh, with, like, a much, much improved CPU and maybe a redesigned thing. I don't know, uh, maybe higher resolution. But for now, my LCD deck is more than enough uh, for what I do on it. So no plans to upgrade there. But if you do have an OLED deck and if you did receive it, let me know about it. Let me know what you thought. You can leave comments on this podcast at podcast.thelinuxexp.com. And this will uh, conclude this episode. I thought it would be shorter, but it wasn't because I ranted a lot about AI uh, and about KDE. So I'm sorry about that, but I hope you still enjoy the episode. As always, if you want to dive deeper into any of those reads, I especially recommend the X11 uh, is a bad platform article from Nate Graham and also uh, the article about uh, open source licenses that might not be enough anymore. Those are the two ones that you should absolutely check. Uh, If you want to read any of those, all the links are in the show notes. And if you want to support the show, all the links are in the show notes. It helps me just make this podcast relevant, pay for the hosting, and keep doing this. Uh, And also, as a tidbit of information, if you become a Patreon uh, for the podcast and the YouTube channel, it's the same Patreon. Uh, Memberships start at uh, €1 per month or $1 per month, depending on where you live. It has regional pricing, I think. Uh, If you become a patron, you will get a daily little podcast about the Linux news. Uh, So you will get an RSS feed that you can add to your podcast client. And you will get, well, not only my own weekly rant where I talk about the channel, the podcast, uh, stuff that interests me in the Linux world, but you will get a daily recap, uh, five to ten minutes of everything that happened the previous day in the Linux and open source world. So if you like your news really, really fresh, you can subscribe to the Patreon right now. And starting in, uh, I think it's three days, starting on Monday, you'll get your daily uh, little podcast for just that. So thanks for listening. As always, thanks for supporting the show for everyone who does that. And you will hear me in the next one, I guess.